The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In the time I had away this past week, I was able to read about halfway through another biography of Charles Spurgeon, which was a great joy to me. If you don't really know anything about Spurgeon at all, he lived in England in the 1800s. His conversion was dramatic. I've shared it before in, in, in sermons. But he grew up in a household where he would have had access to thousands of books, mainly from the Puritan from the Puritans, and he read a lot of those by the time he was only about 12 years old. Later, when the gospel came home to him and the Spirit opened his eyes in an incredible testimony, then the Lord used those gifts and turned them towards ministry. Now, Spurgeon had no plan to pastor. He just wanted to be a faithful believer. And so there was a pastor, though, who saw some gifts in Spurgeon and thought he would, frankly, <laughs> manipulate him into using them. He told Spurgeon, would you be willing to accompany someone who's going to provide pulpit supply on a Sunday night and be an encouragement to him? And Spurgeon said, sure. And halfway on the walk to the small village of Taversham, England, Spurgeon said, I'm looking forward to hearing you preach tonight. And the guy said, you're preaching tonight. And Spurgeon realized that he had been duped into providing pulpit supply that evening himself. And so that was the first time Spurgeon preached. But he had such a strong walk with the Lord that people could tell something unusual was happening. During the sermon, one woman yelled out, bless your heart. This is a, this is a quote. She actually used bless your heart. Bless your heart. How old are you? And Spurgeon just kept on preaching. He said, we, we can't have any distractions. So he kept going. Well, after the sermon ended, after the last hymn was sung, she yelled out again, bless your heart. How old are you? And he replied, I'm under 60. <laughs> Um, and then she yelled back, actually more like under 16. <laughs> In reality, he was 17. Um, and this was the first time he was preaching. Now, of course, they could tell something unusual was happening despite his young age. And so that woman led the charge of virtually demanding him to come back. He preached there three times, and then there was pulpit supply needed in a small town of Water Beach. This was the year 1851. And so he went to Water Beach and they there also begged him to return, and he was eventually called by the church, so he began pastoring at 17 years old. At that time, he was invited to a, a pastor's conference, which there were many of them among Baptist churches in England. And at the conference, um, some of the older men really hated Spurgeon. They hated him in part because of the fact that God was immensely blessing his church. The church in Water Beach had 40 when he came there, and within three months they had 400. The work that God was doing was very unusual. So one of the older preachers there, who was himself a, a rather rude man, said this out loud at the pastor's conference. He said, it is a pity boys do not adopt the scriptural practice of tarrying at Jericho till their beards are grown before they try to instruct their seniors. It was clearly a, an intended way to belittle and sideline young Charles Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon actually knew the Bible much better than any of his seniors did. And so he knew exactly what the man was alluding to, Second Samuel 10. And so when the time came around for Spurgeon to speak, he addressed the chairman and asked if he could respond. 
And he responded by explaining that actually in that passage, the, the men who have their, their beards being shaved are full-grown men. That's the whole point. They're, they're fully adult men, and their beards are shaved after they have failed, and they have to wait for them to regrow before they can return to Jericho without shame. Spurgeon then drew the analogy that that would be like a leader in the church who had actually openly sinned or morally failed, and that they needed to wait until their character had come around in reputation before they could return to public ministry. Now, Spurgeon just said that off the cuff. He had no idea that the older pastor who had critiqued him was actually himself guilty of hypocrisy and open moral sin. But everybody else in the room knew that. So it ended up being very embarrassing for this older minister who had publicly disgraced himself. Now Spurgeon was just defending the Bible, explaining 2 Samuel 10. Unbeknownst to him, there was a man there who was from New Park Street Church in London, the church that Benjamin Keach and John Gill and John Rippon had preached at, the most prestigious church of Baptist denomination in all of England. Well, anyway, that church begged Spurgeon to come. He eventually came, and that's where he spent the rest of his life in London at what became known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now, that true story in history illustrates actually the underlying problem that we have still as churches when we try to discern who should lead the church. We very easily could fall to the temptation of that woman, bless your heart, how old are you? Or we could fall to the temptation of that older senior minister. Surely you just don't have enough experience. Actually, though, the Bible is the place where we get the qualifications for those who would lead the church. God has not left us in the dark on that matter. And so the title of today's sermon is The Church's Overseers. Hopefully you have 1 Timothy 3 open. If you don't, Pew Bible is page 1178. And in today's passage, here's what I hope we will essentially see, and and I think it'll be very clear to us. How should a church, how should a manual recognize our leaders? And the answer is we should recognize leaders that manifest the qualities God has given for them in the Bible. So we should recognize leaders that manifest the qualities God has given for them in the Bible. We should not make up our own qualities. We should not make up our own set of leaders. We should recognize leaders that God has revealed have the qualities He wants them to have. Now, you're in 1 Timothy 3. I'd like you to read down just a bit, and then we are going to go back to the passage that we're going to descend on today. Please look down at verse 14 and 15 so we remember what this book intends to do. Verse 14 of chapter 3 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and listen, Emmanuel, this is for us you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So God does have plans for His church, and He wants us to follow His plans for His church. Now, I've learned over the years that when I preach a passage like this one on the leaders of the church, half of the congregation sort of checks out and says, oh, this it's not about me, so I don't need today's sermon. It's not applicable to me. It doesn't affect me. Would you look in chapter 4 then, just one chapter later, so you understand how this affects each one of you. Look up in verse 11 of chapter 4. Okay, stay with me. We're, we're all... First Timothy 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, 
to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. All right, now verse 16 is going to tell you why you need a certain kind of leader. Verse 16. The leader needs to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice then that the kind of leader you have impacts your salvation. At the first sermon in 1 Timothy, I explained that it's not hyperbole to say that the kind of local church you join or visit or never join or participate in will have more day-to-day impact on your spirituality than anything else. Here's another verse to show that. Now, perhaps this morning you're a little confused. Pastor, isn't it like once saved, always saved? Once you kind of pray the prayer, everything's over. That, that could be a big topic. I'll just try to say it simply today that God always finishes the work that he begun in us. Philippians 1 6. We can say that we're glorified past tense from God's perspective, but it does work out in time through the means of grace. And a chief means of grace is what kind of leader you have. Because if he doesn't teach the word well, you won't grow well. And notice the end of verse 15. Actually, we should see our leaders progress, which implies that our leaders are still growing themselves. But we should not just learn from their teaching, but we should also learn from their life. So we should see in leaders our Lord. So now we're back to our text today. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And I hope you already understand why this passage actually affects you a ton. Because your leaders are supposed to show you and teach you these qualities. These qualities are to be manifest in all of us, but your leaders are supposed to model them for you. So today's sermon will show us, hopefully, how to develop and recognize such leaders but also why these leaders are so vital for your walk with Christ. Alistair Begg is worth quoting. He writes, Leadership, like the other gifts of the Spirit, is for the edifying of the body of Christ. Paul made it plain to Titus that things were not in order in a church until proper leadership was established. Most unsolved problems in church life can be traced back to defective leadership. All right, now if you're a note-taker... I added six um, points yesterday. So they didn't make your bulletin. They didn't make the, the notes. Hopefully these six will be helpful to you. They're not original to me. They belong to Jeremy Wren in his book, Elders. And I'll explain that term as we go through today's passage. But here are the six. Um, we'll go through them. Here's number one. This is the first one. These are going to put our text today into six categories. So what qualifies one to be a leader in the church? What qualifies one to be an overseer, an elder, a pastor? And here's the first. Here's number one. Ready? Number one, you want to be an elder. Now, not all motivations are godly, of course. But you must have an inner desire to be an elder from the Holy Spirit. Look with me in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy if anyone, notice the word, aspires So the first category of qualification or quality that must be manifest is you must want to do this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, 
He desires a noble task. Peter will write it this way in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. And one who is an elder must serve not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have. By the way, this doesn't mean there are never days of discouragement or doubt. But it means as an overarching characteristic, those who lead the church want to. They've devoted their life to this. This is a burden from the Holy Spirit that doesn't abate. It's something that God has burned within them. All right, now verse 1, you're looking at it with me, says office of overseer. And perhaps you're from a various denominations today. Maybe you're from a denomination where you're used to using the word priest or the word bishop or the word reverend. Since most of you are Baptists, you're probably used to using the word pastor and you're probably unfamiliar with the word overseer. So what is the word overseer? What does this word mean? Well, in first, in Titus 1, Verse 5, we read in the Bible, you should appoint elders in every town or every church. And then in verse 7, they're called overseers. That's really helpful. So an overseer is an elder. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, the very book we're in, in verse 17, these same people, overseers, will be called elders. Now, also in Acts 20, verse 17, we read that the elders of the church Verse 28, should pay careful attention to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. The next word is shepherd. First Peter 5 says it this way, To the elders, I write as a fellow elder, be shepherds, verse 2, under the flock which you serve as overseers, verse 3. Alright, so did you catch that? The word overseer is the same word for elder, it's used synonymously with it, and it's also used synonymously with pastor. They all give different emphases, but they're all describing the same office. So whatever denominational background you're from, understand this, an overseer and an elder and a pastor are all describing the same office. Now, for reasons related to church history, Baptists tend to use the word pastor, but my Baptist brothers and sisters should know that it is the rarest word in the New Testament. It's only used in the noun form one time. The most common word in the New Testament is elder by far and away. So the description most commonly used of the leaders of the local church by God is the word elder. So that's what we're describing here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. An elder or shepherd or overseer. Now these qualities are actually unremarkable. That's the most remarkable thing about them, <laughs> is that they're remarkably unremarkable. In fact, every one of these qualities, with the exception of teach, is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament for every ordinary Christian. But of course, why would we be surprised? Because we're all to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So don't forget, the elder overseer pastor is not called to do anything morally that we're not all called to do morally. He simply is to model it so that we can better see it. Think about it this way. If you're running in a 5K, you're all running for the ticket at the end of the race but you have mile markers that you can draft behind to help you get there, okay? So we're all running for Christ, and these are hopefully imperfect, but genuine mile markers to point us to Christ. That is the purpose of elders. As we just read in 1 Timothy 4, they are to set the believers an example. So number one was you want to be an elder. Now number two, ready? These are the new notes, the six. Number two, what else would actually qualify someone who would lead the church? Number two, you exemplify godly character. So if we as a manual are going to recognize 
elders among us. We're going to recognize our leaders first. We need to recognize people who want to do this. In fact, they, they burn to do this. But number two, we need to recognize people who have requisite godly character. I'll quote Jeremy Wren here. He writes, you might assume that the most important characteristic for an elder would be skill in running an organization. And while management ability is part of being a church overseer, the New Testament writers put a far greater emphasis on holy character. Jesus' under-shepherds must reflect Jesus' character. And I love the way he lands his paragraph. Better a godly elder with mediocre leadership gifts than a charismatic leader with glaring moral flaws. And that is why in this passage we'll see a lot about character. And so we're going to look now in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy 3, and let's look carefully at what God tells us should characterize those who would lead His people. All right, verse 2, we read, Therefore an overseer must be, and here's our first description, above reproach. Let's go ahead and pause. When you read above reproach, you might be tempted to start defining it. I think above reproach means this, you might say. Or I think above reproach means that. But actually, above reproach will be described by all the words that follow. Okay. So above reproach is not a box that we fill our own ideas into. Above reproach is a description God fills the ideas into with the words that follow. We don't have to guess at what above reproach means. It's all the words that follow in the description. John MacArthur says the reason above reproach is called for at the elder level is because we are the example which you all are to follow. And if being above reproach is part of that example, such is required of you. In his book, Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strzok writes, what is meant by above reproach is defined by the character qualities that follow that term. So now let's look at the qualities that follow. So we continue in verse 2. Above reproach, we then have the husband of one wife. We'll come back to that one. We'll stick with character right now. So the next description is sober-minded. The word also could be translated temperate or vigilant. It's in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23 as self-control. So one of the ways someone demonstrates that they're above reproach is they have self-control. A good question to ask ourselves is, am I excessively carried along by periods of worry, fear, fright, or other peaks and valleys that demonstrate a lack of consistent control. The next description in verse 2, after self-controlled, we have respectable or prudent. These are terms that talk about not being impetuous or impulsive. The other word is of good behavior, depending on your translation. Both of these terms talk about a well-ordered life. But then as we continue in verse 2, we see hospitable and able to teach. We'll save those for the next category. So let's continue in the character category of verse 3, not a drunkard. Now, of course, all Christians are called not to be drunk. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Bible often only addresses alcohol as something that you could be drunk with, but I do think in the Bible there's a principle of not being um, under the mastery of any influence. So not being overtaken by any influence that would cause you no longer to devote your life to the Lord. The next phrase we have in Scripture describing the character is not violent, not a brawler. We might say in today's culture, not a bully. 
We saw in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, that the kind of men that lead in the church should do so with holy hands without anger or quarreling. As we've said before, people who lead the church must be able to contend for the faith without being contentious. They must not be quarrelsome people always seeking to, through might, have their way. In fact, the next word helps make that even clearer, doesn't it? In verse 3, not violent, but gentle. Of course, it means... Uh, it doesn't mean that you yield to the truth, but it means that you demonstrate a gentleness in your demeanor. First Peter says we're to speak with gentleness to all people. Christ tells us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. And this word gentle often actually does refer to a gentle recovery of those who have failed. So not quarrelsome, not violent, gentle. Verse 3 continues with not quarrelsome, or your translation may say peaceable or patient. So someone who doesn't find joy in being at odds with others. Verse 3, we next read, not a lover of money. This is also something that must characterize those who lead the church. If they're in the employ of the church, then surely they should not be known for trying to get all that they can from the church. If they're not in the employ of the church, if they're lay elders, we might say, then they should not find their employment outside of the church to be the driving force of their life. So not a love of money that guides them. We're all told this is all as Christians. Perhaps many of you know from Hebrews 13, 5, the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, I've noticed very few Christians know what that follows. The verse actually begins, keep your life free from the love of money because I will never leave you nor forsake you. So no Christian should find money to be their security when Christ is our security. All right, so these are the six categories, okay? Remember, it's the number one was you want to be an elder. Number two is you exemplify godly character. Now number three, you can teach the Bible. Teaching the Bible is central to the elders' shepherding work. So look back in verse 2. Able to teach closes out verse 2. I think the way D.A. Carson has put it is really helpful. If you picture a necklace that's beautiful, but the center of it has a diadem, the diadem at the center of the shepherd's life is the gift of teaching. The character qualities are to be true of all of us. He's to model them to everyone. But this is the distinctive trait that's unique to what God has given those who serve in this office. It's the distinguishing skill that the Spirit has given. Of course, it's monumentally important because the Word of God is what gives us the sanctifying grace we all need. And so it's the man's ability to skillfully handle the Word. Titus 1.9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and contradict and rebuke those who contradict it. This exceptional quality is to mark the ministry of anyone who serves in this office, whether they do so from the pulpit or whether they do so in the classroom, whether they do so formally or whether they do so informally. First Timothy 4 says, preach the word. First Timothy 5, 17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. Titus 1, 9, we already quoted, but Acts 6, 4, we see by precedent with the apostles that they want to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's number one. You have to want to do this. Number two, you need to demonstrate godly character. Number three, a gift to teach. But now number four, you lead your family well. 
Jeremy Wren is worth quoting again. He writes, American society paints a bright line between public and private, work and home. We evaluate a business leader on his or her ability to increase profits and meet company goals, not on the quality of his or her personal life. I'll just pause to insert my own comment here. Over the years of reading biographies of great historical figures, I've noticed that most great historical figures were terrible husbands and fathers. Almost always. Read about Churchill and his wife hardly knew him. Read about Lincoln and Mary and the boys left the White House because he was never there. So we're very, very used to thinking of greatness in the public realm and overlooking the private realm. So let me continue with Wren. He writes, the leader's home world, his children, his marriage, his sex life, we like to think of as no one else's business, but in the family of God, an elder's home life matters immensely. In fact, marriage and parenting act as proving ground for elder fitness. So look in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. There we read that one who is to lead the church must be, in English we read, the husband of one wife. The Greek is mios gunikos andra, and it could be translated one woman man. Now, lots of ink has been spilled trying to debate for both kinds. Uh, let me just try to help make the point simple. Whether you like the translation husband of one wife or whether you like the translation one woman man really doesn't change the fact that this is not a quantitative but a qualitative quality. In other words, it's not asking how many people you are with at a given time, obviously. It's asking what your devotion and purity is like, whether you're married or unmarried. Let me give a couple examples. Um, this week we were off, we were on vacation, so we were just kind of relaxing, and, uh, and I turned on America's Got Talent, and we see people do silly things, and then my kids try to do those silly things <laughs> as well. And so this one guy came up that does impressions, and he went to explain who he is, and then he explained that he's in a polyamorous relationship. Now, I turned the channel off because I didn't want them to see that, but I went back and watched it later to understand what was going on. I've heard the word polyamory for years, but I've never heard it on a public venue. Normally, it's discussed in academic circles. The word polyamory means multiple, and then you might guess from amorous love, so multiple loves. When I went back and watched it, this guy uh, who works in, in Hollywood and does voice impressions is married to a woman. His name's Justin. He's married to a woman named Katie. They've been married for 15 years. And four years ago, they added Claire to their relationship as well. And because they can't legally marry her as well, the three of them live together. And the, cl- the crowd overwhelmingly applauded. They thought this was the greatest thing, you know. So, of course, this passage precludes that. Polyamory is obviously sin. But Christians, we know much more than that, don't we? We know that true love only flourishes in the garden of exclusivity. It can't flourish anywhere else. So I'll just tell you pastorally what I've observed over the years that has always distressed me. I've known many men who uh, were not divorced. They had never been divorced. They'd always been married to one woman. But they, in fact, were flirtatious. Uh, they privately engaged in pornography. They were not reliable men. But they felt like, well, hey, I'm the husband of one wife. On the flip side, I've known a number of men who were divorced perhaps years previously, but the divorce met the biblical exceptions, and they've lived faithfully with that wife for years, and I think satisfied the text actually here. 
So remember, the text is not talking about something quantitative. How many can you count? It's talking about something qualitative. Are you pure in your devotion sexually? There are multiple ways you can break this without technically ever not being the husband of one wife. All right, the text goes on to tell us about the home life further. Actually, in the same verse, verse 2, not only does it say husband of one wife, which reveals the home life, but then it has the quality hospitable, which also refers to the home life. All Christians are told to be hospitable. Romans 12, verse 13 says, Share with the Lord's people, practice hospitality. But those who lead the church must model this, model a willingness to have people over their home. Or more importantly, we might say to have people interrupt their life. Now, verses 4 through 5, if you look down there, now continue the home life as an important proving ground for those who would lead the church. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, again, many things could be said here and many things need to be worked out here. There's a textual thing in Titus 1 that is debated often because some English translations translate that the elders' children need to be believers, uh, but the Greek more likely renders they need to be faithful because the word could be either thing. Of course, the Bible tells us rather openly that no one can secure the outcome of their children, especially after they leave the home. But the question is, if you were to show up at their home, do they actually demonstrate a willingness to teach the Bible there? Do they pray there? Do they sing there? Do they instill the nurture and admonition of the Lord there? Is there work being done at home that actually precludes their work being done in public? So now we're at number five. Number one, you want to do this. Number two, you have character. Number three, you can teach. Number four, your home life matters. But now number five is you are a male. And here I'll quote Jeremy Wren. He writes, God has called men and only men to be church elders. Does this mean that women can never teach or shepherd or confront sin or model godliness? Of course not. You can probably think of godly women whom God has used to shape you spiritually as can I. But the eldership is more than a gifting or a ministry. Elder describes a specific office, a divinely appointed role, a distinct position within the organizational structure of a local church, just as father is a distinct position in the home. So God has sovereignly summoned qualified men to the role of elder. Now, this topic we worked through a few Sundays ago in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. So if you have a lot more questions on it, you should start there. But just to be clear... God is not denigrating the gender of woman, surely. He made them in His own image. But God is simply showing a distinctive role responsibility. And as we tried to explain before, the burden of weight and sacrifice that goes with those who lead is a burden God has placed on qualified males. This text makes that clear, doesn't it? Because it says, husband of one wife or one woman man. And you'll notice every single pronoun is in the gender for male. They say he throughout the text. And that's how it is spoken of in all other New Testament passages. All right, now number six. So six ways you could tell who would be the leaders of our church. They want to be. They have godly character. They have the ability to teach. They have a home life that also models what they say publicly. Number five, they are men. And now number six, and finally, they are established believers. They are established believers. 
Sometimes newly saved Christians amaze us by their spiritual enthusiasm, rapid transformation, and fearless evangelism. But we should put, be slow to put that energetic Christian into eldership too quickly. Look in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3. He must not be a recent convert. Now we know that's not referring to age because remember what we read in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise your youth. So he's not talking about biological age. He's talking about spiritual age or maturity. So not a recent convert. The text tells us why. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There hasn't been enough spiritual maturity yet to be entrusted with leadership. And verse 7, I think, continues that thought to how the new believer is thought of outside the church. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into the snare of the devil. Now again, all of these descriptions, except teach in the formal sense, are used elsewhere in the New Testament of every believer. All of us are to be characterized by these things, but our leaders need to model them. We want elders who want to be elders, who exemplify God the character, who can teach the Bible, who lead their family well, who are males who are not established believers. But if we're honest, when we think about who our leaders are, we may actually use other criteria. The th- criteria that I'm about to list are not inherently wrong by themselves, but if we make them the key criteria, we will choose poorly. If we choose someone just based on their passion, we'll choose poorly. If we choose them just based on whether or not they have the right degrees, we'll choose poorly. If we choose them just based on their years at a church or the service roles they've had or the way they've given or their business savvy or their secular world accomplishments, none of those things are bad. But if we choose on the basis of those in priority, we will choose poorly. So here I would remind us of now we are on your bulletin, what you have there. Number one, Jesus has qualifications for those who will lead His church. Let me pause on the fact that this is His church. You know Emmanuel belongs to Jesus, right? So don't forget what the Bible tells us. Jesus is the head of the church. He purchased it with His own blood. We are the bride. He is the groom. Think of Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea. In the same way, Jesus would evaluate Emmanuel and Jesus would have something to say about Emmanuel because Emmanuel is His church. Therefore, for us to choose leaders, we must surely choose leaders that manifest the qualities Jesus wants manifested. Let me tell you three common ways that we actually disobey Jesus. Uh, Maybe not here at Emmanuel, but just generally, churches disobey Jesus in terms of choosing our leaders. Here are three common ways. Here's the first one. One way we disobey Jesus is we simply ignore the qualifications. And we just choose based on loyalty or friendship or years of knowing each other or any other sort of criteria like that. We don't actually deal with the biblical qualifications that Jesus wants us to deal with. In fact, there's a workaround that's become common since the 1960s, and the workaround is to just make up your own office and give them the authority that actually belongs to elders. And then you can say, well... I didn't mess with the qualifications. I just made it my own thing. Do you know what happens when you make up your own office? You make up your own qualifications and they're never as good as God's. 
So this is a common way we actually disobey Jesus. Make up our own offices, give them the authority that God's actually only given to the office of elder, and then make up our own qualifications for them. That's wrong. Here's another common way we disobey Jesus. Um, we confuse or invert the offices. Now this one, frankly, has become a common problem in Baptist churches, and I saw it growing up in my home church. Now the next office Jesus is going to talk about is the office of deacon. It's a wonderful office. My dad's been in it about 40 years now. But that office should never be given the authority and responsibility that the office of elder is given. And if you invert those, and the office of deacon becomes a corporate board or parliament, then you've actually broken what Jesus wants for His church. Remember, Jesus is the head of the church. We cannot make up new offices, we cannot ignore the qualifications, and we cannot flip the offices either. Think of it this way. If you are to drive a truck that has a passenger CDL, there is an examination, there's a licensure. And if you decide, no, forget all that, we're just going to put whoever we want into the truck, then you're going to have an accident. <laughs> and it's not going to go the way it's supposed to go. Now, we know that things can go badly. And we'll get to that later. But we have to start with following what Jesus has actually said. Here He tells us what the qualifications are for His church. As I said earlier, what's remarkable about these qualifications is that they're unremarkable. They're just basic Christianity meant to be modeled for the church, and yet, sadly, all too often, they are lacking. Now, they lack in all of us to some degree. So let's make sure we understand that these are qualities that should point us to the Good Shepherd who alone manifests them perfectly. Remembering that is important for two reasons. The first reason it's important is so that we do not expect from people what only Jesus can provide. Dan Doriani writes this helpfully. He served as a pastor for years, and he points out that many pastors who are particularly skilled in one area are hated for not being skilled in the other areas. But he demonstrates, I think, rather well that in the Bible there are three offices in the Old Testament. You remember them? Prophet, priest, and king. Think about those offices this way. Prophet is someone particularly gifted at teaching. Priest is someone particularly gifted at personal care. King is someone particularly gifted at administrative or leading. Do you know in the Bible who holds all three offices? Only Jesus. No one else holds all three. And the couple in the Bible that hold two don't hold them particularly well. Remember Moses. <laughs> so actually in, in Scripture what we see is that even the best human under-shepherds we have will be deficient. This is partly why God gives a plurality but it's also why we need to always trace the beam up to the good shepherd alone. Look through the passage with me now, but now think about Jesus in verse 2. The overseer, who is merely an under-shepherd of Jesus, is to be above reproach. Only Jesus is sinlessly so. The overseer is to be the husband of one wife. Think of how Jesus was sexually perfect his entire life and has been a perfectly faithful groom to his bride. The overseer is to reflect Jesus who is sober-minded and self-controlled. Only Christ was perfectly, appropriately, emotionally, even in every situation as fitting. The overseer is to be respectable. Only Christ is worthy of ultimate respect. The overseer is to be given a hospitality, but only Christ welcomes whomsoever will. 
The overseer is to be apt to teach, but only Christ is the perfect teacher. The overseer is to be not a drunkard. Remember, Christ actually was accused by the Pharisees of being drunk, but it was a slanderous lie. His life was always under control. The overseer is not to be a brawler, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but peaceable. Surely the Prince of Peace has shown us that best, forgiving His crucifiers. The overseer is to be free from the love of money. Why? To show us Christ, the Son of Man, who said foxes have holes, birds have a place to lay their nest, but even the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. The overseer is to rule his own house well, but we know why, because four verses later we read that it's the household of God, and only Christ has ruled it perfectly. Remember, verse 7 closes by saying, he should have a good reputation to those who are without Christ was perfect, and yet those who are without crucified Him. We're reminded there that even a good reputation can be received poorly, but remember, Christ gave His life intentionally. It wasn't taken from Him. This morning, then, be encouraged, because if, like me, you read through this list and it pokes you and shows you areas you are deficient, rejoice that there is a great high priest who, in fact, fulfills these alone perfectly, and died in our place for those of us who deserve such condemnation. Our best leaders will be sinners saved by grace. And our best leaders should hopefully, imperfectly, but genuinely show us that Savior who is changing their life. Now in this verse, the word overseer is used in the singular because it's referring to the office. But let me pause for a second to say, that when it's referring to a church, these terms are always used in the plural. The word elders, plural, is used in Ephesus in Acts 20 for a singular church. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders, plural, in every singular church. Titus 1.5 appoints elders, plural, in each church. So we should notice that in the New Testament, every time the office is described for a church is always used in the plural. So we at Emmanuel should pray for many elders over the years. Many people who aspire to and manifest the qualities that we just read about in 1 Timothy 3. Now, I know at Emmanuel, we historically maybe haven't thought about it that way. Maybe historically we've thought about having a pastor and then some other things. In the New Testament, we actually see a team of pastor-elder overseers who lead the church in plurality. We should pray for such. We should desire such. Perhaps as a man listening today, you're wondering, all right, Josh, what if I cross the side? What would it be like? Let me give you a little bit of a picture of, I think, what makes elder work a little bit different. Elder work, if you were to gather with elders on a monthly-ish basis, the primacy of our discussion is the glory of God and the good of our flock. Meaning that elder meetings have a lot less attention given to perhaps the very important business of the church, but much more attention given to the spiritual development of the sheep. Elder meetings then are much time in prayer. We're grateful that people in the church are gifted diversely. That's how it should be. We should care about one another in terms of our material and physical needs. But an elder in his visits with others goes further. In his visits with others, an elder asks questions like, what has been joyful to you? What has been fearful? How is your walk with Christ? How can I help you in your understanding and application of Scripture? How can I pray for you? 
These are questions that more likely characterize elders. In the Bible, we're told elders shepherd the flock. Acts 20. Elders model to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. Elders teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Elders refute false teaching. Titus 1, 9. Elders manage the church. 1 Timothy 3, 5. Elders pray for the sick. James 5, 14. Now at this point, you may be thinking, Josh, it sounds like the elders would have significant amount of influence, exertion, and power. Isn't that dangerous? I'm very sympathetic to that. It's true. The elders would have uh, a, the primacy of shepherding the flock, a tremendous amount of responsibility. But let me answer that concern with a couple thoughts. First, this is why the congregation can remove the elders, and we'll get to that in chapter 5, so we won't go over it today. Second, that's why there's qualifications. Right? <laughs> that's why these are here, so that you don't just put anybody into this level of leadership. This is a level of leadership that must prerequisitely meet 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, through 7, and Titus 1, 5-9. through 9. But the third answer I'll give is to explain what Christian leadership is. Now to do that, let me share a testimony by R. Kent Hughes. R. Kent Hughes has been a pastor for a long time. If you're one of the men here who's run Disciplines of a Godly Man, that's one of the books that he's written. By the time he was in his late 30s, he had pastored for a decade and a half, and he, in his own words, had seen it all. <laughs> when I read the descriptions of what he had seen, it was eerily similar to my own experience. He saw many people in leadership in the church who, sadly, were exceedingly unqualified. He writes stories of a man in his church who was married, who was one of the leaders in the church, who had a relationship with several men in the church that became discovered later. He writes about the treasurer who showed up drunk on Sunday morning in the Narthox, talking about leaving his family and going to the Middle East. He talks about pious, Bible-quoting, soul-winning murderers he's known. He talks about going to pastor's conferences where he's met trembling wives who reveal private abuse and perversion by their publicly straight-laced husbands, tales that sound as if they were scripted by Flannery O'Connor. Here I'll quote Hughes. He writes, I've said in times of despair that you've never been had until you've been had by a fellow born-again Christian who calls you brother. Am I too cynical? He writes, I do not think so. I am a realist who believes in the power of the gospel to change lives. But church leadership can attract people with mixed and sometimes outrightly sinful motives. The seeming prestige of spiritual leadership attracts some. The lure of power draws others. Spiritual directing entices some. All these motives are empty pursuits. Hughes writes, I've learned to be very careful in respect to the character of those appointed to church leadership. He writes, I say all this to emphasize that Christian ministry and leadership is without question a matter of character. One's authentic spirituality and Christian character is everything in church leadership. Sadly, as we all too often see in the news, you can be an extremely charismatic speaker who has a very ungodly life. Ultimately, at the great day of judgment, God will expose this all. But we as the church actually should try our best to sincerely follow the qualities as given in this passage. We should pray for, develop, and desire leaders, elders, overseers, pastors who manifest these qualities because that impacts our salvation and Christ's glory. Sadly, though, in our culture, we don't think about leadership 
the way that Jesus does. And that is why we are wrongly enticed to it because we don't understand it. I hate to give such a vulgar example, but it's a true story and maybe it'll help you understand. I grew up in the city of Detroit. It's a very corrupt city. <laughs> very corrupt city. One of the mayors we had was Kwame Kilpatrick. If you don't know his story well, he's in jail currently. But when he was the mayor of Detroit, he extorted the city for large amounts of money. And one of the ways he did that was in the mayoral mansion, he brought in prostitutes and held parties there. While he was mayor, he was stealing money from the city so that he could indulge in licentiousness in the mayoral mansion. Now, the thing I'll never forget was I was listening to sports radio while all this was unfolding in the news, and someone called in and said this on behalf of the mayor. Well, he's the mayor. Isn't that what leaders are supposed to do? It was just mind-blowing to hear someone think out loud that leadership means privilege and promiscuousness for your own advantage. But in reality, even if you don't think about leadership quite as vulgarly as Kwame Kilpatrick did, probably as an American, you do think about leadership as power and privilege for personal pursuit. Let me remind you how Jesus talks about leadership, and you can answer out loud, okay? For those who be first, Jesus said you have to be what? Last. Those who would be greatest, Jesus said you have to be what? Least. Those who want to enter the kingdom of heaven have to humble themselves and become like what? A child. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. One of the reasons we get concerned about power struggles is because we don't know what leadership is. What leadership actually is, is the abandonment of power. So let me explain that very practically, because some of you men, I pray, will serve here as elders. As you're praying about this, men, think about it this way. If you like privacy and you want to serve as an elder, you will lose some privacy. If you like approval, you like it when people like you and you would serve as an elder, you will lose approval. If you like power or control, maybe you've never served in a Baptist church. (laughs) If you like freedom, you like having your weekends open, you will lose a lot of them. If you like your schedule going the way you like it, eldering's probably not for you. See, actually what leadership is in Jesus' economy is how much you lose. And the more you lose, the more qualified you are. We have so forgotten this that that's, I think, the reason we have this debate over male and female leadership in the church. Now, I've never seen the movie The Titanic. I guess I'm way behind on pop culture. But I read a true story that Albert Muller told me about it. Here's what he explained. Uh, the director of Titanic, when he was filming the movie, made sure he filmed the movie in such a way that when the Titanic was sinking, that men were pushing women and children out of the way to get to lifeboats. But when the director was accosted by a historian who said, well, actually, all the historical records show us that what really happened when the Titanic sank was all of the men went down and gave the life rafts to the women and children. The director of the movie said, I know you're right, and I know that's what happened historically, but it's the 1990s, and no one will believe me. Now, isn't it amazing to think that we have such a perversion of what power is and what leadership is that we can't even believe 
historical occurrences. This is why it's so difficult for us to trust Jesus with who leads His church. Now I'll give you finally three reasons why Jesus does care about how His church is led. Number one, finally, final conclusions. Jesus gave this office as a gift to His church. Ephesians 4, Jesus ascended and descended and gave gifts, and the gifts are leaders who will deny themselves for your good. He will hold them into account and He will judge them strictly. But we need elders who are not business savvy primarily, but those who shepherd souls. Number two, Jesus gave this office as a gift to others in it. This is why Jesus demands a plurality of elders for every church. Ecclesiastes says it well, two are better than one, but each elder is so limited It is so detrimental to a church. If a church has only a solo pastor, it is much better for the church to have a team of elders who round out the gifts. And it's much better for those elders. Number three, Jesus gave this office, don't forget, to imperfectly but genuinely point to Himself. This is why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. This is why Peter writes, we are under shepherds. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, set the believers an example. So men, we'll continue to talk about this and pray through this for Emmanuel. But today, all men listening, I pray that you'll think over these six things. Would you consider being an elder? Would you be willing to model godly character? Would you be willing to grow in your teaching of the Bible? Would you work on leading your family well? Would you follow Christ's leadership in being willing to lose? If so, this could be a way you could really serve at Emmanuel. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are humbled to follow a crucified Savior. And as we pivot our thought and affection to communion, we're reminded, Lord, that the very reason we are saved is because God is not self-asserting, but self-abandoning. It is remarkable to think that in a culture that demands our rights, we have Jesus who gave up all rights, His very life, to save the completely undeserving. Remind us then that the character and heartbeat, we might say, of a pastor, elder, overseer is to give himself away for the good of God's people, even if some of the sheep bite. Jesus is giving His life for those who at the moment don't want Him. And so also pastor shepherds must be willing to sacrifice even if on the journey not all of it is received particularly well. So help us, Lord, to lose. Help us to lose our life so that we would find it. And Lord, I pray that at Emmanuel, the thing that would always govern what we do is what Jesus says He wants done. So guard us, Lord. Because it is easy to slip into other sources of authority. May the Scriptures sanctify and guard the church that Jesus has given His life for. In His name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.